Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our mini-series all about the future of HR. I am your host, Rodney Evans, and I'm coming at you with another very special guest episode today. Brian Elliott is an advocate for transforming how we work. He has 25 years of experience across companies like Google, Slack, the Future Forum. I have had the pleasure of chatting with Brian on multiple occasions, including on stage at South By. He is a friend of the pod. He is a wonderful human being. He knows more data off the top of his head than truly anyone I've ever met. Brian, welcome back to the show. Rodney, it's great to be here. Great to be with you again. And love the focus that you guys are having on HR and helping them transform their own organization. Thank you. It's been an exciting time spelunking back into the cave that was my early career. And today we are going to really dig into data and HR. I keep hearing data folks talking about how they need to make data informed decisions. They need data to be front and center. No one knows more about this than Brian does. So we will get into all of that. But before we do, you know, we got to check in. This week's question is kind of a wild card. Who is your most interesting relative? I'm going to go with my Aunt Deanna. She was actually, a, she was a second cousin, but she was my dad's cousin. She was a nurse by training who ended up in hospital management, who ended up going back and forth and working in Saudi Arabia in the 1970s and the 1980s, which is pretty wow. wild when you think about it. As a single woman doing that, the sort of adventures she had, you know, literally going out on camels on safaris. And so she would come back with these really amazing stories, but was just tough as nails, no nonsense, and one of the most caring, lovely people that I ever knew growing up. That's so awesome. I have a very colorful family history, but I'm going to tell a story about my grandfather. My grandpa, Claude, was by far my favorite of the grandparents. And he was a construction worker, and he was incredibly, incredibly bright. And he was like offered a slot on the PGA when he was a teenager, but he had to go to war instead. And just had a very interesting life, particularly for someone of that time and socioeconomic background. The thing that made him actually interesting is that he's one of the funniest people I've ever met. And the story that I will tell in this podcast is that I once had to do a family history report for school when I was in about fourth grade. And my grandfather, who I think just got bored of being interviewed by me, made up a sibling and named him Mike and told me he lived in Ireland and talked to me for like 15 minutes about this guy that didn't exist. I finished my report and I show it to my mom and she's like, I don't have an uncle Mike who, what? And she calls my grandfather and she's like, what did you tell her? And he's like, I don't know. I was just telling stories. And my mom was like, dad, this is for a grade. But anyway, I turned it in That's great. and we laughed about uncle Mike all the time. But that was like just his sense of humor. It was just, everything was for his own 
entertainment and amusement. And he was just quite a guy. Okay. But I got to know, what grade did you get on the report? I think I got like an A (laughs) minus. So the fiction helped maybe a little bit. I think the accuracy was not as important as a really good narrative about the most colorful member of our family who did not actually exist was was really what made made the great Grandpa Claude. So Brian, tell me what you've been up to since the last time I talked to you. A lot has changed. We chatted post South by about coming changes and then stuff happened. Where have you been? What is going on? You know, I had a great time uh, co-founding Future Forum with Sheila and Helen and building that up over the past three years, kind of work of a lifetime. Uh, We brought that to an end this spring and sort of closed that particular chapter. But, you know, all of us continue on in different ways. And I continue on with the work because I'm very passionate about helping people build a better future of work for organizations and people. And so I'm sort of doing a couple things. I am advising a series of startups that are sort of future of work plus tech oriented, some great founders out there that are really on a mission, but also have some good ideas. And I'm also working with executives in larger companies that are grappling with all this stuff still, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we find the balance? Because we know top-down mandates don't work, but the individual free-for-all doesn't either. And kind of in my heart of hearts, and I think you know this better than most, I'm a data geek. And so I just sort of love digging into the research um, and finding ways to combine that with a little bit of storytelling and some examples that might help people find a better path forward. So that's me. Yeah, I mean, we love to tell them about the data and then we love to see them ignore it. But we're going to talk about that today. (laughs) So, you know, something that has been really fun and valuable has been some light jamming with you on our future of HR work because I do feel like you are very plugged into the people, people, and particularly the leaders in the CHRO CPO community. So I would love to just start by hearing a little bit from you about what is top of mind for those folks? Like, what are you hearing as their most pressing interests and concerns? Yeah, it's a great question. I'd love to hear what this resonates with you too. I know you've had a ton of conversations with the same groups of people. People leaders have a really hard job. Uh, in the past couple of years, has been really taxing more than almost any in history between the COVID pandemic and all these major shifts to how people think about working, plus layoffs and all the rest of it. And I was with a group of chief people officers a couple months ago, and we just basically polled the dozen people in the room. And what came out time and time again was the phrase burnout, right? That mm-hmm. burnout for themselves, burnout for their teams is higher than it's ever been. They're seeing it in their organizations. But the sort of number of pressures that are on people leaders who are the glue inside these organizations, but often have a lot of responsibility, but not enough authority, um, yes. has been really challenging for them in terms of getting the resources they need, but also just like helping people take a break. That's been a big one. Another one that is topical in the moment as we record this, because it's post-Labor Day, is this ongoing return to office um, (laughs) debacle. We're never going to be done with this thing, are we? Yeah, no, it's just like this is Groundhog Day. We keep on rehashing the same things over and over again. And honestly, there's many more important things when it comes to productivity and inclusion. But You know, I've had a lot of chief people officers tell me, you know, we're making some progress, it's going well. But then, you know, my CEO went off to a meeting with other CEOs and came back and said, we're getting them all back in the office. You know, there's obviously some people where that's not the case, but it's an ongoing hot point within a lot of organizations. And people leaders are often the ones that are sort of stuck in the middle of it, feeling like they don't have autonomy to help make it happen. Yeah. 
That one has been interesting lately because I've sort of stopped paying super close attention to like the hot takes from the CEOs. But I have been reading more and more, which is quite interesting, about the responsibility of companies to the cities or local environments that they're situated in and like some of the impacts to major metropolitan areas in terms of small businesses because of the vacancy, et cetera. And that, to be totally candid with you in all of my thinkings about return to office, I wasn't really thinking about that. I was not thinking about the shoeshine guy in the bottom of the Citibank building who is now un or underemployed or the kinds of leases that often big companies have that guarantee a certain amount of revenue to those small businesses. So like, I wasn't thinking about that part of the environmental loop. I was thinking more inside of companies. Is that something that's coming up in your conversations too? It does, and it does on a repeated basis, and, and it's also personal. Like, I live in San Francisco. We feel this here, right? You can feel it and hear it. San Francisco is often sort of the poster child for all these conversations, whether rightly or wrongly. But you see the same thing, right, which is organizations do have pressure put on them. Maybe a slightly different example, Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., in her second inaugural address has this line in it that starts off, we need the federal government to get people back into offices downtown. And that's Mm. the one that gets the press. But she continues it in the same sentence and says, or we need them to turn those office buildings over to local government that needs the space or to nonprofits that need the space. Mm. And so there really are issues at work here. And it's vastly different city to city, depending on what's going on. And even, you know, regionally. So Midtown Manhattan is very different from Soho. Yeah. And it's very different in Europe where you have a lot more mixed use space. And there's lots of evidence that if you can rethink like central business district that's purely about the work and not about living or social is struggling a lot more than if you've managed to have a little bit more mixed use to it. So Mm -hmm. there is a little bit of responsibility that corporations have in helping rethink and reimagine downtown. But at the same time, I've got a lot of uh, love for the people that say, hey, don't put that on the backs of workers that are facing extended commutes and childcare issues just to um, rebalance it out. And at the end of the day, there's multiple reasons for finding something that's in the middle for everybody on these topics. 100%. And to your exact point, everything we've just talked about in terms of that responsibility, like the most dipshit answer is just go back to the way it was and like force it and grind it and make it so, which is like, you can do that temporarily, but progress will continue and people will continue to demand increasing flexibility and a global talent marketplace will continue to be an ever more accessible and appealing thing. So it's like, it feels to me very short-sighted, both because I just, I don't think it is the responsibility of workers to sit on a train for two hours because the shoeshine guy needs to get paid, but also because it's like, that is just not the direction that work is headed. So it feels like a real band-aid to make it be the way it was for now. Yeah. And one of my favorite lines on this actually comes from a chief human resource officer, Helena Gottschling Mm. at Royal Bank of Canada. She's the one that said, um, you know, when they're having this conversation within uh, RBC a couple of years ago, up in Toronto, her CEO started going down the path of, hey, I think the best thing to do because it's what worked for me is to get people back in the office, you know, four days a week. Mm -hmm. And her line was, are you a focus group of one? Mm. You know, and it's, it's right. a little bit that realization that, you know, the experiences that you had, and by the way, let's face it, the C-suite is largely people who look more like me. 
um, sure. kind of older white guys who aren't primary caregivers is a little biased in its perspective on what works and what doesn't work for people. Absolutely. All right. So burnout, return to office. What else is on their hearts and minds at the moment? It depends on where you're sitting, but this whole generative AI thing kind of has people mm. either really excited or really fearful or some of both because, yeah. you know, the HR team itself should sit at the center of a lot of this, but often can feel like they're sitting on the outside yet again. You know, IT's over here working on some stuff where it's in a bit of a silo. But, you know, if you listen to the experts that are out there, Sadal Neely at Harvard Business School is one of my favorites on this there's a hearts and minds issue at work here, right? Like mm. the executives yet again are too far away from the work to know what it's going to take to actually leverage these tools in a way that's actually good for the business. But, you know, the employees at the bottom level are also often understandably fearful that your objective is to displace them. Meanwhile, of course, smart, sharp people are just grabbing the tools and having at it yeah. and perhaps doing things that are highly problematic, like, you know, slurping your company's data into a public repository. So sure. HR has to really think about how they take a driver's seat in this role. And, um, and that can be challenging too. And the starting point often is, hi, what are you doing about it within your own organization? Yes. And that itself means you got to clear the headspace for a team that's, go back to number one, dealing with burnout. Absolutely. I mean, the capacity isn't there. The time isn't there. Sometimes the interest isn't there. And but... What a moment for <laughs> HR to actually show up differently to a conversation about innovation. Like yeah. what a perfect time to not show up and make a bunch of rules and shut a bunch of stuff down and create a bunch of policy that's threatening in nature. And instead to be at the forefront of this is a wave that is crashing, let's steer <laughs> Yeah. not drown. Um, yeah. And so unfortunately, mostly what I'm seeing is actually neither of those things. They're neither yeah. creating a lot of constraint nor creating a lot of experimentation. But for all of the really sharp HR folks that I've spoken to who have talked to me about how HR has a brand problem, I'm like, y'all, this is a moment that does not come along every decade to really get out in front of something and be like, I am going to get smart enough on this to be convening the conversations that our leadership team and our company should be having about what to do. I love that. And there's three areas we see generative AI conversations getting a little bit sticky in, inside of companies, right? We're sticking around. One is the individual personal productivity stuff, which people are picking mm -hmm. up on. The other is the customer experience side, right? Like we're going to use it to augment our marketing. We're going to use it to augment our customer support or customer service. The one that the that the HR team, the people team owns is the employee experience, right? Mm -hmm. And what a massive opportunity to rethink employee experience inside of an organization. Because I mean, let's face it, any organization past a few thousand employees probably has a couple hundred applications and email aliases and channels that are all the different places where people have to go to deal with, you know, everything from how do I get my laptop replaced to vacation policies, to performance management, to whatever else. And, right. you know, what we don't need to do is repeat the, the mistake of having the interfaces for those be two dozen different apps with two dozen different chatbots. <laughs> the people team can really lean into and own. Let's re-envision what we want our employee experience to look like. Yeah. But that's a, that's a big job. And that's one area, and Sam and I talked about this on an AI app that hasn't come out yet, but that's one area in particular where it's like, I know that automation can feel 
existential and it can feel quite threatening. But I think when you look at the domains or like the problem spaces where truly the human solution has not worked and there's not like a better mousetrap, you know, like that kind of knowledge management that you're talking about and access to information in particularly large complex systems that you're talking about, like the HR folks who are just trying to triage that all day, every day as part of their job, like that's not good work to hang on to because it's not great work. And because ultimately it is complicated. It is dissatisfying. It is not a good experience. It is fucking exhausting to be in that job. I've been in it. And so like, those are the spaces where I'm like, don't be grippy about this. Like, like be excited that finally there is something on the horizon (laughs) to, to solve this problem that has basically been unsolvable. Yeah, exactly. This thing that is where buried in our 101 policies, can I find the answer to X is not a job that you want to hold on to as a human being. Exactly. So yeah, a lot on people leaders minds. I am hearing the same stuff as you just to take a slight journey off the path here. The thing that has been surprise, I don't know if it's been surprising to me, but like, look, you talk about those three topics and they are so seismic, like burnout, the stats around burnout and HR people is just like, it's just, I don't know. I think I read something that said like 98% of HR business partners surveyed report burnout and like the RTO thing, you know, we've been talking about this for two fucking years. It's just like never, (laughs) it's never going to end. The AI thing is like literally the entire future. Like these are just huge, huge trends and vectors to contend with. And yet I am having conversations with HR leaders in good, big companies who are saying to me, like, I just don't know if we're ready to change. And like, we just are too busy to change. And I'm just like, yo, y'all, you got to get unstuck here because the moment is here. I just, I don't know exactly what it's going to take for the kind of shakeup because it just feels like this should be it. The urgent continues to crowd out the important, right? Is what continues to happen on all these things. I also think because each of those is so massive, it's really hard for people to know where to start. Pick one of those areas and say, hey, look, I'm not going to own all of the generative AI mandate within our company, but I'm going to at least start off with being deep in the conversation around guardrails internally for people so they know what they should and shouldn't be doing and how they can and can't be using it so that people actually know good productive uses for it. Or we're going to work on this one aspect that I know is good for my team where we can automate some of the stuff that makes them completely crazy and go deeper there. The same thing is true on the future of work front. Don't try to boil the ocean and fix all of it at once. You got to pick a couple angles like any good transformation project. And you got to go figure out like, there's a couple of teams over here that really are leaning into this. Let's lean into it with them and let's help them become really great change agents. And then at the executive level, we do really have some problems. Let's pick one of them that we all agree is major and material. Is it junior employee learning and development? Is it innovation? Is it, we're worried about sales team productivity? Like pick one. Pick one. Pick one. one. And then make that your mission and put a mission-based team around it. But you can't tackle all these things at once. You've got to pick an aspect of it that you think you can tackle, build success around it, then, you know, expand and move on to the next one. 
totally agree. And just to wrap this up, and then I want to get into data nerdery with you. Um, mm. So many of the conversations I have with HR execs are about being at the table, being sage counsel to the CEO, being seen as a strategic partner. And it's like AI and like LLMs generally, like that is the business in every business. Like, I just don't think that there are a lot of businesses that are going to avoid this next no. phase shift. And so I'm like, if that is the disposition that you want to hold, you should not be showing up to meetings without a reasonably well-honed opinion on what's going on. And that doesn't necessarily have to be in the customer-facing or the market-facing part of your business. But to your exact point, if you haven't at least run some experiments yourself in your team so that you can show up to the leadership team being like, here's what we're trying, here's what we're learning, here's what we're seeing, what about you? I, I think I think it's a mess. Yeah, I do too. I also think yeah. we've, we've suffered, this has hit HR teams more than most, but I think we've suffered broadly over the past year or so is everything's become really short-term focused, right? What's right. the short-term payback on something? Because economic pressures are up, the, the earnings pressures are up. So what can we do that's got short-term impact? And a lot of things that you and I are talking about here and that people are understandably worried about isn't short-term. So you yeah. have to find some way in which you say, hey, look, I'm going to carve off X percent of my resources, my personal time, or within my team to dedicate against one or two of these issues because we're going to have to establish leadership around it or the price I'm going to pay a year from now is going to be way too high. I think that's exactly right. So let's talk about data. Mm -hmm. I am very excited. So in each of the sort of hot topics that we started with, well, I mean, less so for AI just because of its novelty, but certainly in terms of return to office policies, in terms of burnout and employee well-being, in terms of DEI or parental leave or vacation policy or performance management, name your HR practice here. There is a lot of data out there that contradicts the status quo. And I think that in a lot of cases, this data is known to leaders <laughs> and it's not hidden. Some of this data comes from research that you do and publish and people ask you about it. So tell me like what keeps people and companies from acting on data and on research that contradicts the existing way? It's a great question. I think there's a couple of things at work here. One, the past couple of years, what you've seen is this split of people who, a lot of this data, by the way, existed prior to the pandemic too. Researchers okay. can tell you the same sort of things. But I think the big difference is we didn't have any lived experience of a different way of working, right? Mm. People hadn't been exposed to something that was radically different. So therefore it got easily dismissed. And so I think that's what's shifted and bifurcated, you know, to some degree leadership between people who are like, wow, if that was wrong, what else have I been wrong about? And how do I lean into yeah. that and try something different? And honestly, seeing some of the benefits too, in terms of the ability to attract and retain talent, and bring people in from broader geographies, et cetera, et cetera. Now though, under pressure, it's easy for all of us, including executive leaders to fall back into what feels familiar for sure. us, right? And a little bit of this is back to if I can't see people, then how do I know they're really working uh, type of stuff? Mm -hmm. So the biggest difference that I've seen is it's not just the data. It's you've got to actually engage people in what are you actually concerned about? And then let me tell you a story of a company that's taken a different approach. And let me even give you a couple of tactical examples. Mm -hmm. So 
let me let me try an example with you. I actually had this conversation with a senior real estate leader two weeks ago now. Cool. Um, we're sitting at the table over lunch and talking about all of these topics around future of work. And her line to me was, I'm really worried because, you know, how's the younger generation ever going to learn? When I was coming up through the system, I had, you know, a thin wall between me and the boss's office and I could overhear all of his conversations. And mm. let's set aside the particulars of that one <laughs> question the ability of listening in on your boss's conversation. Sure. But at any rate, you know, her point was, you know, listening and learning happens that way. She didn't even finish her own story though, before she said, but I also have seen and know that with my own kids these days, that they also build connections digitally and that they've got tons of friends that they're well connected with, even though they haven't, you know, met them in real life, quote unquote. So there's a balance point there, but what's much more helpful is, is to take people who are in that mode of the younger generation's not learning and say, let's start with data. A lot of people start off with the supposition that Gen Z never wants to come in the office. The data says mm -hmm. that's not true. Matter of fact, they're the most likely to want something that sits in the middle. They don't want to be five days a week in the office. They don't want to be fully remote either. They want time together with people for socialization and belonging. So that's let's help you dissuade it a little bit. But then let's start talking about examples that other companies have found to help make this work. So for example, a couple of financial services groups in New York that I've worked with have said, hey, look, we know that mentorship is important. We're going to use that as an anchoring mechanism to help get some of the senior people back in on select days of the week also mm, and mm -hmm. set up open office hours so the junior staff know that the more senior people are available to them on Tuesdays and Thursdays, for example, so they can go in and ask questions. Mm -hmm. And then the third is, let's just give you personally some tactical how-tos. You're worried about how to give a salesperson feedback. What stops you from picking up the phone and calling them after a customer pitch to talk it through, to see what they sure. heard from their customer, right? You've got a design team. You should be able to share the design on Figma, screen shared live through tool of your choice and look at it together, regardless of what your physical location is and then talk them through it. So that's sort of like, let me give you an example of a company that's done something to help bridge the gap, but let me also help you personally think about this thing that you are used to doing in a specific way because you've done it that way for 30 years and right. give you a little bit of an alternative point of view on it. I love that. And I feel like in so much of our work doing transformation, you know, it's not necessarily about data specifically, but I see the same patterns over and over again where it's like, in the example you gave, it's like, well, here's this thing that just kind of happened to this person by osmosis. Surely there's no other way to recreate that except for natural collision and thin walls. And it's like, well, there is. Like if we design some stuff intentionally, we very well may be able to simulate mentorship or advice or relational connection or trust building or a bunch of other things that I think a lot of times the things that feel more developmental, more human, more relational in yeah. nature, we think just happen by magic and there's no other way except magic and coincidence to recreate those outcomes. But like there are designable ways to do that. I think a lot of leaders aren't org designers and I have no judgment about that. It's not a job that everyone wants to have. But I think once you are an org designer, you're like, there's more than just, you know, hope as a strategy, um, hope yeah. and tradition as a strategy for getting what you want. Rodney, are you saying that random chance is maybe not the best strategy for driving innovation I mean, and learning inside of your organization? It's possible. It's possible. Really? I'm sure you've done this by multiply by a thousand, but like, 
The number of people I, who have really straight-facedly explained to me about, like, collisions and whiteboards, and I'm like, oh. okay, I mean, like, sure, but, but, like, that's not the only way for exactly. ideas to be shared. Exactly. And we've seen this, too. Like, I've heard this conversation where the senior leader says, I need people back in front of the whiteboard because we really need to debate this conversation. Like, oh, you can picture the person, right? They're holding that pen for dear life and they're going to control the pen. And so the example that I've used, and I did this with somebody a couple of weeks back and said, "Um, you know that you're the CEO and a lot of them are really not going to debate you. They're going to wait for you to talk first. And then they're going to line up in most cases. Why not instead try something like brainwriting, which is I'm going to give you the prompt a week in advance, and I'm going to give you time to dig through it. And I want you to come with five ideas, you jot it down, bullet point format. And at the beginning of the meeting, we're all going to throw those five ideas into a Google Doc or into the chat or wherever the heck you want to throw them. And that way you get rid of the filter. And you've just yes. got 10 people times three to five ideas to start sorting through, sifting through and seeing what comes out of it. Yes. And and when you give that to somebody, they're like, huh, I'm going to give <laughs> that a shot. That worked. Yeah. Forward, right. So it often is just giving people those little, here's a way you might rethink it. That's got more intentional design behind it. Absolutely. And to just like tie both of your points together, sometimes those kinds of shifts aren't immediate. Like they doesn't always work the first time. And a lot of times I do see teams snap back to something that is not really functioning particularly well, but feels quite familiar, as opposed to having the patience to kind of stick with the new move or the change that they're trying until they see the outcomes or until, frankly, there's enough mastery for it to be interesting. It's like, since I've been back from my vacation, I have recommitted myself to meditation and I'm really I'm a terrible meditator and I always have struggled. It's really difficult for me. And it's like, part of why it's so difficult for me is because I don't do it. And because the change that happens in one's brain on meditation is not overnight and it does take practice and it does take consistency and it is very subtle. And like, who knows if I'm picking up my phone 10 times less a day because I'm meditating. It's not so, you know, press the lever, get the nugget. So I think there's the time scale thing. And then there's the subtlety thing that I wanted to just sort of also ask you about. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of this stuff that we're talking about basically comes down to things that have to do with employee engagement, right? And employee engagement is one of these sort of trash fires of how do you measure it and how do you think about it and everything (laughs) else. Yeah. And it's even sort of a trash fire of a term in the first place. But, you know, how do you know that people are actually dedicated, care about the mission of the company, are putting their all into it, all the stuff that we ought to care about that's really hard to get to because it feels really amorphous, but it's the thing that actually drives your performance in your organization. And that can feel really daunting. And so can this whole surface area of topics that we're into. But some of it can be things that are like, instead of waiting until you've got all of the data to take an action, the problem often is it's because you're thinking about, I'm going to have to change all the things as opposed Mm -hmm. to saying, can I start small? Can I take an experiment someplace and can I play with it? Can I ask people about it? Can I survey them? Can I see how it's going? Can I then transit that to another part of the organization see if it sticks there and moves on. And that way what you're seeing is small iterative changes that adds up to something where your investment level can be lower initially, 
your payback isn't huge, but you're seeing positive momentum out of it. And you're building a case, honestly, for yourself as much as for the rest of your team to be able to say, hey, we should put more resources and more effort behind this because here's the evidence we've got within our own company of happy people that are doing good work as a, right. as a broad strokes way of measuring it. Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, what are some of the organizational metrics that you like? Oh, man. Um, e People ask me this all the time and I just make a bunch of shit up. I don't. Yeah. I, I just I usually use things from clients that I've worked with, but that is not like a category level view. We did this at Slack too. And I actually did it with my own team at Google. When I was there, I had about 350 engineers. So it was kind of like, I wasn't getting what I needed out of the company. So we started doing it ourselves. Um, mm. NPS, net promoter score, and doing it with your own employees. It works, mm-hmm. right? Like okay. knowing whether or not someone would recommend to a friend to come and work on this team or in this company, that's a pretty good level of insight into whether or not things are going in the right direction. Intent to stay is always one of those mussy, fussy, hard to distill what it really means type of things. And then what we started doing was getting into comparisons across different you know types of problems that people were having to get at what's really getting in your way. And so we did this at Slack with a, um, a quarterly pulse survey that we did of employees. And we started out with the focus mainly about being about like, hey, offices are reopening. What are you looking forward to? What are you not looking forward to? And started getting you know questions and responses from people. And then over time, it morphed into things like, no, really, what's getting in your way at work? And one of the biggest mm. things that came out was focus time. Mm. And so we started asking people questions like, do you have enough, and we defined it, two hour plus blocks of focus time during the work week to get heads down work done? Yeah. And then we would start correlating that with questions about burnout, about your ENPS. And lo and behold, huge correlation between whether or not you had focus time and whether or not you you know, felt burnt out. And then you could start cutting it by groups. And so you start mm. looking at it and saying, hey, look, our frontline managers are the most burnt out. And by the way, that was true in future form research also. They're the most likely to leave. They're the ones that have the least amount of focus time. Now I've got a problem. And now I've got something I can focus on as an organization and say, what are we going to do about it? And you can also compare it against apartments and business units and geographies. And you can pick and go, what's this team over here doing? What's this customer experience team over here doing that's different? that we might learn from in order to you know, improve it for everybody else. I love that. And I think, you know, that leads me to just want to talk about you and, you know, blatantly self-promote the Raddy's take on future of HR stuff, because I feel yeah. like as we have more of an understanding of what some of those experiments might be or what changes are in the OS that we want to make, we have to get after that stuff cross-functionally. One of the reasons I was so interested in working with HR is because it is such a cross-functional microcosm of large, complex, cross-functional organizations. And so just fundamentally, as opposed to you know a department, for example, a small legal department where Mostly you have lawyers and paralegals and admins, and there's not a ton, a ton, a ton of variety in the same way that HR has just a wild spectrum of things that they look after. And I'm kind of like, if you can figure out cross-functional teaming in HR, then fractally, 
that should be able to translate and scale to an entire org. So I'd love to just like hear you sort of talk about the cross-functional nature of the solutions that you think will help answer some of our thorniest issues at work. Yeah. I mean, when you think about the whole future of work landscape and flexibility at work, the people team can't do it alone. The workplace team certainly can't do it alone. The IT team yeah. can't do it alone, right? There's just those are three legs plus the fourth would be your comms team of a stool, right? That needs to come mm-hmm. together to actually make this stuff happen. And so you got to figure out how are you going to do that? How are you going to bring that group together? But it also needs dedicated resources in order to pull it off. So this happened at Slack. Most people assume Slack was, you know, hunky-dory, remote-centric, pre-pandemic, and we weren't. In the uh, early days of 2021, we started looking at office reopenings. I distinctly remember Aaron Figueroa, fantastic leader on the operations team, came forward with a plan to the C-suite saying, hey, here's how we're going to think about office reopenings. And I'd wonder, I don't think they're aligned. And sure enough, that went sideways. Mm. So I got pulled in as sort of an outside internal voice, if that makes any sense. Like I had the uh-huh. external research, but I also sure. had a deep passion around this. Nadia Rollinson and Don Sherifan, our, our people leaders, were pretty immersed in this thing called a Salesforce acquisition. Um, mm, so they mm-hmm. tapped me to come in and help pull together a broad cross-functional team. And we had you know, people leadership that was really central to it, but it also took representatives from workplace, from IT, and heavy-duty you know, involvement from the comms team to even think about what are we going to do here? What's the path forward look like? And then those back and forth interactions with the C-level executives that had to get sorted out because they weren't on the same page. Mm -hmm. But HR can't get there on their own. We've seen this in a bunch of data that we've done at Future Forum that my partners have done at Boston Consulting Group. Like, If the CEO is not engaged in the conversation, it's really hard to move it forward completely. But I'll tell you at the same time, I've also worked with a lot of organizations subsequently where that doesn't mean you stop. Um, And I think too often, you know, we we get, the people team can get stuck in one of two places. We don't have enough data. We don't have complete enough data. It's not rich enough data. So therefore, we're not moving forward. Or I'm not sure that the CEO is fully bought in versus Mm -hmm. I've got a group of people that are pretty keen on experimentation, iteration, and trying things. Why don't I rope a group of them together and just go fucking do it? Yeah. And build some momentum around a case for change through, you know, people who are willing to put the effort into it um, and where we can actually take a group and experiment with them and also point to outcomes that they're actually generating. Yes. Yes. And so it's kind of both. You know you need to get your cross-functional partners in place. And it's fantastic if the CEO is backing it up and you've got that back and forth with the C-suite where you're wrestling it out like we were doing. But even if you're not, that doesn't mean that you walk away from it. It means you start building your case based off of internal examples where people are trying new things and showing positive results. It's such an important point. And I just want to say two things about it. One is you do have to have the capacity to do that. And so many HR teams don't and no capacity fairy is coming to give it to them. So it's like in order to run experiments and to try new things, you do have to clear some space. And Sam and I just did a whole episode yesterday that is being edited about organizational debt and where to find that space. But the point is 
when you find it, don't just fill it up with more garbage. You've got to like turn your attention toward experimentation, which leads me to in capacity crunches. I feel like the tolerance for experimentation that we just learn from, but don't necessarily scale because it all succeeds goes down. You combine that with the short-term thinking that you mentioned earlier and the lack of exact correlation between experiments and possible benefit. And you get some murky territory that I find sometimes HR leaders are not super comfortable swimming in. And so I'm just saying that to say, like, let's just know that that's true and do it anyway. And I'm curious if you've seen this. This is very anecdotal, but it happened to me and I've heard this from a few other HR folks as I've been talking to them about mission-based teaming and what they would try and what needs to change, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll just tell you a really short story, which is a woman who I was speaking with who had had a pretty big job in HR, but was not the CHRO, tried something as part of the annual promotion process to increase the diversity in the slate of candidates to be considered for promotion to a certain level. And it worked. And so she came to her team meeting with her peers to talk about what she and her internal client had tried and what the results had been just to share. And her boss's response to her was, we don't need heroes here. (laughs) And I say this because I don't think that that's unusual. Like, I think that there are a lot of us who have had the experience in HR of not being encouraged to try new things, being encouraged to only do things that we feel very certain will have the intended result, being held accountable for that result, whether it's good or bad. And so there's a lot of mind-shifty crap around what you and I are talking about, particularly in people functions. Yeah, no, I, I've seen that too, and I, and I totally get it. And I hope the person you're talking with, well, I know what probably happened, which is as soon as that happened, she started thinking about, well, that's the last time I try something new and put extra effort in here. And the second thing she thought about is uh, time to start networking and thinking about totally. what the next thing, right? Absolutely. Because th- this is someone who's got ambition, who wants to have yep. impact, who wants to not just do the right thing, but actually make positive change happen. So Do something. Exactly. And (laughs) that's that's the problem with all of these signals, which is if the answer is top down, we're going to tell you what to do, what you're essentially signaling to anybody at any level, including one down from a C level, is shut off your brain and just go through the motions. Yeah. And then what you get is an organization that shuts off its brains and goes through the motions. And you wonder why your competitors start lapping you, right? And you wonder why... When times get tough, people aren't putting in the extra effort. And the answer is, it's the signals you send. Exactly. I, I so that's, that's my exactly tirade. Right. I, yes, th- I think the answer I mean, on that one is, don't give up. Give, you might not want to be trying it there, but you're, you put the energy into finding the place that will actually want someone who's got that drive. Right. You might give up on that later, but don't give mm-hmm. up in general. <laughs> don't give up. Uh, well, there, there's a lot of us out here that want you to succeed and would love that's to help exactly you find right. your next a company exactly that we're welcome right. So as HR gets all fired up and is doing the experimentation that we're talking about to solve some of the biggest challenges that they've got on their plate, talk to us a little bit about 
how HR folks who are listening should be going about sourcing and interpreting external data. I will tell you, even in the seat that I sit in, I can find it very overwhelming. Like doing my own research about AI can feel a little bit like a very deep, dark, endless well that is very tiring and hard to consume and create insights from. So what to do? Yeah. And I consume this stuff myself like crazy. I happen to have a background that way back when was statistics and social sciences. So I got literally trained on how to dig into research and find flaws in it and all the rest of this stuff. Yeah. There's a couple of things that I do think are important. One is how do you balance the external and the internal? So external studies can be really helpful. You really always want to question on something that's external, a little bit of the why, what's in it for them. So Mm -hmm. whoever's putting it out, why is that company or that person saying this? What's their motivation? Are they out to sell a product? And then you take a little bit of a, an askance eye on it. Are they just looking for the headline? And oh my sure. God, there's a ton of that these days that makes me crazy. What mm. was the circumstances of the study is a good question. Like mm. there's a study that came out that showed that people working remotely, their productivity fell by 10%. Great. Was that a study done on call center workers in India in 2020? Because if so, I think I know right. the extenuating circumstances. Right. Right. So that kind of thing. I do think it's important to build up internally within your HR function, your own analytic capabilities Mm. and data literacy becomes really important and figuring out who within your team has that mandate and is going to start helping you figure it out. It's doing a little bit of that external sensing, but also importantly is the person that's rethinking what you do internally for your own monitoring, sensing data on How's our pipeline looking? How's our retention looking? What are we hearing out of our employee surveys? And please, God, tell me you're not just still doing the annual once a year (laughs) employee engagement survey. But the person who's sort of owning all that and helping you pull it together. And if you find that person that's helping teach others how to do the same thing, it's sort of like the story of how you change and transform work internally itself. It's you've got to have somebody in your team and maybe it's you start off with somebody who's adjacent that will come in. I'll give you a story mm-hmm. there. Within Slack, most of this work was being done by the research and analytics team that sat under product because they were really into it, right? This was like mm-hmm. their field and what they knew. And Lucas and Ashley and Christina were fantastic partners and they put in the time and energy. But over time, the objective is let's also show our people partners how to do more and more of this stuff themselves so that they can continue to have at it and learn on the basis of what's working here and what's not working here. I love that. So as HR leaders who are pursuing a more evolved future of HR model start to dig into data and gather insights, and they're able to start seeing patterns. For example, let's say that they're like, hey, our performance management system is garbage, and it's quite expensive, and uh, it's not delivering the results, and in fact, is distracting and demotivating. And they're like, let's create a cross-functional mission-based team to really disrupt ourselves in this way. But the CEO is like, That is the tool and the system that I grew up with, and I believe in it because I'm comfortable with it and I like it. What then? What are our HR friends to do in the face of opinions versus data? Yeah, and that's a really key one, and it's a hard one in a bunch of these places. 
So starting point on this has to be what's the nature of the relationship between the chief people officer and the CEO. And, yeah. and you and Heather got into this in an earlier episode that I listened to that was great. If that's a good relationship, you know, you can actually sit down and sort through this hopefully fairly easily. Even if it's not, the starting point still is probably a one-on-one where the two of you are talking through and saying like, I understand that this is the tool you grew up with, but what is it about the tool? What is mm-hmm. it that you're actually looking for from an outcomes perspective? And if you can get back to that, what's the outcome we're trying to produce? And then come back to the CEO with like, here's the issue. <laughs> the outcome you're trying to produce is not being generated by the tool we're using today. Let me show you some evidence of it. And let me paint you a picture of what we might do instead. And here's a story from another company that's using that and the outcomes they produced. Mm-hmm. So it's that combination of like making sure I understand what outcome they're after in the first place. And then it's the homework. It's the work of going out and saying, hey, look, I'm not just asking to do this with a broad fishing expedition. I've actually got some evidence that there is a better way of doing this. And here's a story from somebody else that's actually been successful in doing this. I love that. I used to teach a thing many moons ago where that was about empowerment. And and one of the lessons was allow the how. Because it was like, if you can get super clear on what the thing is that you want, then like, why do you care about which tool it is? Or why do you care how many raters there are? Why do you care if there's a force distribution curve? If you're really clear on the outcomes that you're aiming for, can as a CEO, for example, can you like allow the how within your organization to come to a solution that is going to work for the user? Absolutely. And I was at a company recently where the CEO at one point may have said, hey, we're going to have a forced rating system and a forced distribution. And the crowd shared plenty of examples of how that had gone awry in a variety uh-huh. of different companies. Right. And the CEO went, I've actually seen this now. OK, now that I've got evidence in front of me, this thing that I thought was great because 20 years ago, it's the thing that I dealt with. It turns out there's actually some good evidence from companies that have walked away from it about why they walked away from it. I'm so glad that that is where we are going to wrap this up because something that I keep thinking about throughout this conversation is for all of the data literacy that a lot of us need to level up around and for all of the ways to create stories and narrative and use cases and for all of the experimentation to be done, one underlying drumbeat is like, we don't have to be so afraid to change our minds. It's not... (laughs) It is not a weakness. It is not a vulnerability. It is not a knock on anyone's performance to hear new evidence and change your opinion. And that feels like a very modern way to lead organizations and a great place to wrap up this conversation. Brian, always love having you on the show. Please tell the people where they can find you and learn about all the awesome things that you're up to these days. Rodney, thank you so much for having me. You can follow me on LinkedIn. It's the easiest spot to find me these days. I'm Brian Elliott. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And for all of you, please keep sharing these episodes with your HR friends, neighbors, colleagues, etc. I want to meet your CHRO. I learn from them every single day. It's been really amazing. And thanks as always to Taylor for making us sound great. This mini series is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing fohr at theready.com. As for you HR folks listening right now, let's change ourselves first. <laughs>